Hello and welcome back to my podcast, Control-Alt-Delete. This is Emma Gannon and today's guest is Vanessa Van Edwards. She's an author, a Huffington Post columnist and a behavioural investigator and she consults Fortune 500 companies. Basically, she's a professional people watcher, speaking, researching and cracking the code of interesting human behaviour for audiences around the world. Vanessa's groundbreaking workshops and courses teach individuals how to succeed in business and life by understanding the hidden dynamics of other people. She's been featured on the Wall Street Journal, Today Show, CNN, Fast Company and Forbes. In her own words, she loves inappropriately intimate questions, which is good because I just am very nosy on this podcast and probably ask people too many personal questions. And she loves eavesdropping on strangers' conversations in coffee shops and loves trying to figure people out. Vanessa doesn't believe that there are boring people, just individuals afraid to expose who they really are. So she's my kind of person. I absolutely loved talking to Vanessa. We just carried on talking once the podcast was finished for ages in a little room at Penguin Random House. And yeah, I I really did meet a bit of a kindred spirit. So I hope you enjoy this episode and all of the different things we discuss from body language to personalities, characteristics, whether you're a high neurotic, whether you worry too much or whether worrying is in fact a good thing, how to be the most memorable person in the room, email etiquette and just so many more things. So I hope you enjoy it and here it is. I'm really excited to be with Vanessa Van Edwards. You're a recent discovery to me, but you're so exciting. I read your book very quickly and immediately was just like, I need to get you on the podcast because everything that you're talking about, I feel like I haven't heard in a conversational way that I can relate to. Yeah, I've seen a lot of talks that are quite robotic about what Mm. you should do to do with body language and connection and people and collaboration, but... You're different. Oh. And I just want to talk about, first of all, like, let's go right back to the beginning. Sure. I was just saying that I haven't, like, stalked you enough online yet. Sure. So I wanted to ask you these <laughs> questions in person. So, yeah, when did all of this start, your interest in this topic? So I joke that I'm a recovering awkward person. And the reason for that is because when I was younger, I would get, um, when I was in social situations, I would break out in hives. Yeah. And it was one of those things where it was a very physiological, it was a very physical reaction to being very anxious Mm -hmm. and so if I was you know around the girls the popular girls you know they you can see them a mile away and I I would approach them in the hallway and I could see them I could feel my heart start to Mm -hmm. race and I would go please 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 don't let me get hives because I would they would start on my forearms and they would spread to my legs and actually I'm grateful for those hives hard to say that now but it taught me that I have to do something because it wouldn't, I couldn't interact, I couldn't continue like that. Mm-hmm. And so I began to pay attention to who are the people, what are the situations that trigger this feeling of anxiety, and then what are some very concrete ways that I can deal with it? You know, and you mentioned earlier that there's sort of this robotic way of approaching people skills. I was told, I don't know if this is robotic, you can tell me if it sounds robotic. I was told a lot, just be yourself, mm-hmm. just make friends. Just be authentic. And those things meant nothing to me. So I felt like there had to be something more concrete that was out there that someone could say. Yeah. And that's kind of where it started. (laughs) Yeah, it's not as easy as that. And it's the same with social anxiety. I don't get social anxiety, Mm -hmm. but I do have friends who really suffer with things that other people wouldn't think 
were a big deal. Mm. Things like um, going up to a group of people and not knowing how to enter that conversation. Oh, yes. Break into the group. Yeah, to break in. Yeah. And a lot of what you write about is kind of first impressions, mm-hmm. um, colleagues, like how to get your point across in a certain way. This is all backed up by so much science. Yes. And that was what the incredible thing is as well, is how much you've researched this. Well, I, I had read all these people skills books that were like very anecdotal, lovely books, but like one person story. Mm-hmm. And the problem, the thing is, not the problem, but I think that everyone has social strengths, right? So just like, you know, you excel at certain sports or certain creative endeavors, certain people are born to sing. They, they came out of the womb just belting it out, right? Like there's something about other people, they are natural born athletes. I think it's the same thing with social strengths. Certain people are born for public speaking. They are just born on stage. Mm-hmm. Other people are born thinkers. They're the best observers. They contemplate. They're deep thinkers. Other people are the, their friend's therapist. They're always the one. Their friends, like no matter what, they're at a party and someone's like, let me tell you my deepest, darkest secret. Mm-hmm. That's a strength. We don't think of it that way, but I believe each and every one of those things are a social strength. So if you know what your social strengths are and you're listening to one person's anecdote and his or her strengths are different than yours, the anecdote doesn't work. Yeah. So I thought, okay, what if we take some, some ideas that we know about, things we've heard a million times before, like here are the, here are the people's skills I've heard a million times before. Uh, one, be the bubbly extrovert, right? Talk mm-hmm. to everyone, be friends with everyone. Two, uh, be interested to be interesting. That's one that you hear all the time, a famous Dale Carnegie quote. And um, three, say yes to every opportunity. What if we took these ideas and we tested them? And that's what I try to do in my lab, is take these ideas and turn them into big data. So we're not just talking about one anecdote or one study, but actually trying to figure out what are the patterns here. What were the most surprising things that you found that kind of busted Mm. a myth maybe? I didn't do very well at school with my grades and things like that because I placed more importance on my friendships and my Mm. social situations than my grades. Like, to me, I could come home with, like, failing everything. Um, But if, like, the popular girl had said, oh, come and sit next to me, I would be winning. I'd be like, I had the best day ever. Yes. And that's how I... And that, to this day, I think, is how I judge my own success. Really? Around just people. Yeah. For me, that's always been, like, the winner. And so that would be a social strength, right? It's like that... So you want to get... If you're doing testing, you want to test both. I think that the biggest prize was um and so in the second part of the i break the book into the interaction framework which is the first five minutes the first five hours the first five days right if you're in an interview or you're dating first you have the first impression you gotta nail that right you gotta like Mm -hmm. see is this my person are you my person right then it's the first five hours right those first few meetings those first few dates uh the first few times you're figuring out okay like okay, we could maybe actually be a long-time friend. And then the first five days are like those really important people, the best friends, the partners, the colleagues you'll be working with forever. So the biggest surprise was that the way that we interact is a mix of nature and nurture. So I used to be more of the opinion that it was um, nurture. You kind of learned, you know, you met your first few friends in the first few years, your parents shaped you. But actually 35 to 55% of our personality is genetic. The reason why this... Right. Yeah. Right. Because you kind of, we always hang on to the like, I'm so like my mum or I'm so like my dad. Exactly. So we are, but that actually comes from a different place. So um, one of the things that really surprised me and gave me a lot of relief, I don't know if 
you will feel this way or not. I don't know if you're a high neurotic, but I am a high neurotic, which is a personality trait. So there's five personality traits. Everyone has these personality traits. They either rank high or low. Neuroticism is one of them. Neuroticism is how you approach worry. So are you, do you um, do a lot of what-if scenarios, pro-con lists? Do you think through every possible variation? Or are you kind of like, you know what? It'll all be fine. It'll all work out. Mm. I'm high neurotic. Where are you on the scale? The thing is, this is what I loved about your book is that it, it gave all of these options because I've never known, I've done so many tests on like, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Right, and I don't, done And that. I don't know because I really am like a I think you're bag. an ambivert. You're an ambivert, like what, me. What's that? An ambivert is um, you're neither an introvert nor an extrovert, but in certain situations you're very extroverted, but you need your recharge time. Oh yeah, that's it. That's what I am yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. But then yeah. certain times I'm like, I'm definitely an introvert because I needed to be alone. It's, it's confusing. Actually, so yes. Yeah, so you honor your recharge time and know the people who bring out your best self. They're the ones you can be extroverted around. When you feel introverted, you either haven't recharged, which is something I know about myself, mm-hmm. or you're with the wrong people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's something hard to own up to, isn't it? That, oh, yeah. that the wrong people are really draining you. It's kind of like, uh-huh. oh, maybe you're not right for me. Mm. Um, and that's difficult. So are you, I, I'm guessing, I don't know if this is right, that you're low to medium neurotic, that you're not as much of a worrier as maybe I am, but I don't know if that's just a quick read. I'm a massive worrier. Okay. But I also have learned over the years to kind of go with the flow a bit more because okay. I'm very I'm very much things come to you like opportunities come and find ah, you when you yes. put yourself out there and I know that I can't control my life as much as I think I can uh-huh and so, so I worry the universe I worry so much but then <laughs> it, that doesn't do anything <laughs> Right. I'm learning okay. that worrying, staying up every night, writing lists is like not going to change the next day. Okay, so here's the, this is how I know that you're a medium neurotic. So <laughs> high neurotics, and if you're listening, you can just say quietly, me too, Vanessa, I can hear you. This is how you know. So uh, a medium neurotic or a low neurotic will say, you know what, I'm worried about this, but it will all work out. I, I have faith in myself. I know that the right opportunities will come and worrying doesn't help me. A high neurotic thinks of worrying like an investment. They think, well, it will go bad if I don't worry enough. Mm. So I better worry. I even ask my husband sometimes to worry for me because it helps me feel like at least someone is worrying about it. Is it a slight (laughs) defense mechanism as well? Because um, there's been times where, and I do do this. So for example, you just did a TED talk. Yes. I, when I did my TEDx a while ago, I, I always think of the worst case scenario. Ah, So I worry enough to be like, Right, I've worried about what could go wrong. So if it does go wrong, well, it's fine because I already worried about it. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So worry bank account. Yes. It, it's, it's, yes, defensivism. I think of it as a worry bank account. It's almost like you've insured yourself against the worst case scenario because you worried about it. Yeah. Right? So it's like, oh, you got my worry in for the day. Yeah. Like that won't catch me off guard because right. I worried all night about that. <laughs> exactly. So exactly. how did you handle the prep okay. for that then? So I can tell you how I prep for the TED Talk, but I have to preface it with sort of the relief about the worry um not staying up all night so what i discovered was that first of all neuroticism is sort of a bad word right you no one likes to admit they're high neurotic and i'm trying to change that slowly mm-hmm. by saying we are high neurotic it's okay we're, we're programmed that way so many high neurotics carry this special form of the gene of the of the serotonin transport gene so not to get too sciencey, but serotonin is a really important chemical for us because serotonin is what calms us down so for example, let's say that you're driving and you almost get into a car accident, but you don't. 
all of a sudden you get adrenaline and cortisol. You're like, oh, and your like heart is pumping. Oh, the moments after the car accident are serotonin producing moments where your body goes, it's okay. You're fine. You didn't get in a car. And your body produces a serotonin, which calms your heart rate down, calms your worry down, and you move about your day. Well, high neurotics produce less serotonin and produce it more slowly. Mm-hmm. They carry a long form of this transporter gene. And so what happens is, is if a high neurotic almost gets into a car accident, they literally physiologically cannot calm down as fast as their low neurotic. So if you're in the car with low neurotic, they'll say, oh, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. It'll all work out. Those phrases to a high neurotic mm. are like, oh, they're the worst. Also, is it because your worry has come true? Yeah. In some instances. In, in, exactly. so, so your brain is like, I knew this would happen. Yes. And that's what's really, that can be. It's a worry come true. Yeah. I used to judge myself for my different reaction. When I would freak out about not being as calm as that person or not having faith that it would all work out, I'd be like, God, like, what's wrong with you? Like, Vanessa, like, just calm down already. But now I know, okay, this is literally chemically, I am not producing the serotonin as fast as him. So his serotonin is working great. My serotonin is going to take a little bit longer. And I give myself the time without the criticism and self-judgment to have the time. The other thing is when neurotics, when something bad happens to us, we feel it worse, right? Like it actually has a greater effect on us. But here's the thing, and this is what I try to teach people. We often glorify low neurotics, right? We think, oh, they're so calm in a crisis. But let me tell you, we need both high and low neurotics. Low neurotics are the ones who get you through a crisis. They're the ones who keep a level head. They're the ones who say it's all fine. But high neurotics prevent crises from happening in the first place. Mm. High neurotics are the ones who say, ooh, I'm worried about a, a hurricane coming through in the south, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stock my fridge and my pantry with extra cans and extra water so that when a hurricane does come, who bought all the extra cans and water? The high neurotic. Yeah. So the low neurotic is like, Everyone stay calm. We're all going to be okay. And the and the high neurotic's like, well, I can bring out my emergency kit that I bought three months ago and my five bottles of water. So we need both. In fact, the best relationships are both, mm-hmm. right? Because you both are are yeah. You can balance. You can balance together. So what I say is, know who the high neurotics are in your life. If you're a low neurotic, you serve as their rock, right? You're their rock. You're the one who can step up and keep them calm and put a hand on their shoulder and say it's okay. On the opposite side, if you're the high neurotic, know who your low neurotics are because they're the ones you should go to in a crisis, but you also might need to help them with some of the prevention strategies. Yes. Right? You're the ones who say to them, you know, maybe put a little bit away this summer for a rainy day, right? Or, you know, make sure that you're getting ahead on your on your studies for your tests. Yeah. But I love that, that you could, yeah. it, it's like you can change the narrative around these like labels that The only difference is your mindset. Yeah. Yeah, you could think of it as bad, but I don't think it has to be. Exactly. With that kind of being a high neurotic so your book is about the science of succeeding with people Mm -hmm. and I was just wondering that a lot of people worry about being liked Mm. they'll go home and maybe worry all night that they've upset someone or Mm -hmm. like their boss hates them or their colleague thinks they're awful how do you deal in like a social context with worry Mm -hmm. so um the first thing is don't judge yourself for the worry your worry makes you human And when you worry, it's a mark of a highly empathetic person. And I will tell you, empathy is a skill. So if you are worrying about, oh, like, did I say something wrong? Oh, I don't know. She looked at me so weird. Maybe she didn't like me. 
that's actually a skill set in itself. You are worrying, which proves that you have a skill that's very important. It will make you a good human, a good partner, a good mother, a good father. That's the first thing. So try not to judge the worry. It's a mark of a high social intelligence. The other thing is you have to remember that one, we worry about other people thinking about us far more than they actually think about us. And that's that's been scientifically proven. Second, There's like studies on how people refresh their own Facebook page like more than they look at other people's. Yes. It's like no yes. one's, probably no one's looking. Exactly. And it happens with everything. Facebook, like people thinking about you like in a negative way. The other thing that women have to be particularly aware of, there was a study that I read about um, women who misinterpret negative facial expressions. So the study showed different women neutral, positive, and negative facial expressions. And women have the tendency to misinterpret the neutral facial expression as negative. Mm. Especially women who have had uh, critical mothers. That's interesting. Because there yeah. was something as well, I think, um, that Brené Brown did. Oh, yes. Who Love we, her. We already mentioned no, her major name. girl crush. Like, two minutes in, we were like, Brené Brown. Brené Brown. <laughs> but there's something that she said um, a while ago about how she would make up stories in her head yeah, and like fall out with her husband because she'd <laughs> made up a story that he thought a certain way. Yes. And ever since she mentioned that in one of her talks, I was like, oh my God, I'm making so much stuff up. Yes. Yes. It's crazy. So what I would say is we are, if you know that you're already erring on the side of interpreting neutral as negative, you have to give yourself a little bit of buffer, right? So if you think that you made a kind of bad first impression, Kind of bad is probably neutral, mm. right? So that's the first thing is give yourself a little bit of buffer. And the last thing is I have had so much success with one-to-one clarifications. And that's really hard, especially um, if you're in school, you're interacting with people very digitally. I found that face-to-face, just quick clarifications make all of my worries disappear. So like if I think that I've offended someone or I think that someone doesn't like me or I feel like you know, we're not getting along in a certain way, as quickly as I possibly can, I try to see them in person. And usually I'm like, oh, what was I worried about? In fact, I have certain friends where we have a lot of texting. We text all the time. And you know how texting sometimes works where you texted something funny or a funny picture and then they didn't reply and then you feel bad because you texted something funny and they didn't reply and then all of a sudden you're wondering, oh, do I over text? Do I text too much? Am I annoying? Right, like you end up going down this horrible rabbit hole. WhatsApp's really bad for misreading things. Oh, I, I, I can't do it. Mm-mm. It's it's like the tiniest little wrong move and it's like a full-blown, like, trying to, you're trying <sighs> to get clarity on it and it's like, but the reason we're in this argument is because of the medium we're yes. talking in. Yes, It's just not clear enough. And so I would say the faster that you can get to in-person, it doesn't even have to be for confrontation. You don't even have to bring up whatever it was. Something about the in-person oxytocin that happens, like we're making eye contact right now, we hugged when we first met, that was a burst of oxytocin. And oxytocin is a really important chemical. It makes us feel belonging. You don't get oxytocin from text. You don't get oxytocin from Snapchat or WhatsApp. And so what happens is you're having interactions with that are connectionless. Yeah in a certain sense, because you're not getting the chemical that goes along with belonging. The moment you're in person and you hug hello, your body produces the chemical that makes you feel like, whew, I have a tribe, I belong, I'm wanted here. Even if there's a miscommunication, with oxytocin flowing through your bloodstream, that that interaction, that miscommunication feels so much smaller than it did when you didn't have it in your bloodstream. 
It's funny, like, do you find that you're able to be consistent in real life and online? Because mm. sometimes I feel that um, I love people. Like, I, everything that I do in my work is always based around, like, does it feel right? Am I doing this because I want to connect with, with the people, A, that I'm interviewing, and B, that I'm working with? Like, you know, it, relationships mm. have always been at the heart of what I do, but then... I can find myself like being really blunt on emails, for mm. example, and I can tell yeah. they're confused because that's not... I'm nice in person, <laughs> yeah. but then I'm busy and I'm like, Ur, and sometimes it is easier just to like write a really quick email. I don't have time to be like smiley face, kiss, kiss, kiss. Yeah. And I'm like, is that like, can <laughs> yeah. you send off di- different signals? Yeah. So there is, a, yes. And I actually have a solution for this. this is a technical solution. So I also will sometimes, because I'm busy, write shorter, more direct emails than I'm used to. There's an app, and I believe it's called Crystal. It's Ooh. free, at least for the free. Like, the, a lot of the services are free. What you do is you plug in your Facebook page, and I think your LinkedIn if you have one, and it crawls your Facebook and, and LinkedIn page, and it analyzes your personality. And then you can plug in your friends and your colleagues. And then when you email that person, it will offer templates to oh make God. your email more personal personalized to them so for example like my colleague Danielle so Danielle is like my right hand she does everything at my lab with me like she's just brilliant and she like she's my other mind basically and sometimes we're emailing 40 or 50 times a day right and so after a while you stop with even the highs you stop with pretty much anything and it just becomes sort of barks <laughs> yeah so it's like a canned response where it will ask you, like, you know, it would be nice to add a hello to this email, or it would be yeah. nice to, to, to say something, to thank Danielle for all of her hard work, and it will, like, prompt you to be nicer. That's really good, because mm-hmm. I do that manually, like, I'll write an email, yeah. like, the, the email that I truly want to send, and then I go <laughs> back and add in, like, hope your weekend was nice. Yes. It's like, yes. be a person. Yeah, be, um, yeah, yeah. Be, be a real human. Yeah. Um, have you seen... Um, it's some sort of filter on Gmail if you use Gmail. It's something like it 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 makes you relook at your email. Like it will be like one plus one equals two, and it makes you do math and then go look at your email again. Oh, and it's like a double check a little bit wow. um, to I, check that you're nice, right? <laughs> That's interesting because there was one there was a plug up plug in thing that Gmail did, or maybe it wasn't Gmail, maybe it was another app, but it was like for women who apologize too much. Oh, so yes, like it would be yes. like you've said sorry eighteen times. Yes, maybe or, take out a few. Yeah, or like the word just, you know, just wondering, just just wondering, um, just getting back to my email now and just seeing this and just wondering if and you yeah. add like just every every time. Yeah. Maybe probably just all the qualifiers. I thought you were gonna say actually the drunk emailing one. Oh. I need that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on Twitter, it should pop up like, are you sure you want to say yeah, Exactly. Or like, I mean, certain people should just be forbidden from tweeting from 12 a.m. to 5 a.m. Because I feel like nothing good happens. Yes. So on true. social media in there, like President Donald Trump should not be allowed to tweet from 12 a.m. to Like someone take away his phone I during know. those hours. I muted him and he still like creeps in because I guess people like retweet and screen grab. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm how? trying to ignore him. Yeah. Have you heard um, that funny joke? Like, how do I know this? So, so there's certain things that, like, no matter what you do, no matter who you don't follow, you just know, like, I know certain gossip about the Kardashians, and I don't know how I know it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'll say, like, oh, did you, like, did you see, like, oh, they used breast milk for Kim's uh, eczema. And I'm like, how do I know that? 
it's like that thing where like it's just out in the ethers. Yeah. Like, it's like if you're a social person, you just see it. And so I, have I so wonder many if that's like, like some sort of human um, evolution thing of like we like stories. Oh, we like telling people stories. So maybe it's like you bank up the weird, crazy ones. <laughs> yeah, totally. For dinner parties, or, or like and like and like you overhear it, or you see it, or you saw it on that news show or that talk show. Yes, yes, it's our, we love, I mean, obviously there's a whole chapter I have on storytelling yes. because like our brains just are hungry toddlers when it comes to that. Like we're just like story, 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 story. Yeah. Like we just like love it so much. Yeah. And it's a way to connect. Like Absolutely. And so like when I was, oh, it's getting back to your question about how did I prepare for my TED talk? So what I did is I took a very scientific approach to it, which if, if anyone is thinking about public speaking or presenting, I would highly recommend this. I, I thought, okay. What's my big idea first? What's the one the one thing that if someone's going to only remember one thing, and usually people only remember one thing, what's the idea they want them to take them away? And for my TED Talk, I wanted them to know that we are contagious, meaning your emotions are not just important for you, you actually infect other people with your emotions. So they're really powerful. That was my big idea. Okay. The second thing I knew is what does the brain latch on to? One, stories. So I made sure that every three minutes I had a story. Two, aha moments. Those moments where someone goes, oh. So I made sure that after the story or before the story, every three minutes, I had an aha moment. And the last one was some kind of laugh. Something that I can make people smile about in some way. Even with the most serious presentation, you always want to have something to smile about because Mm -hmm. it helps the brain remember. And that is literally how I organize my talk. I love that. It was like story, aha moment, science. Story, a home in science. Yeah. I, lo- I can't wait to see it. Oh, gosh, I hope you like it. Now I set the bar so high for myself. No, no I, I re- it's, it's, it's good as well to kind of talk about how important research is. Because like you say, there's a lot out there. It is important to tell our own stories, but we kind of, we do have to back things up, which mm-hmm. is why your book is so great. Oh, can, I, can I mention something? Something just popped into my head about stories. The other thing that's dangerous about just doing stories is people can always come up with justification for their own beliefs. So, for example, let's take a really benign example. Let's say that someone um, thinks that they should move. They, they had this feeling that they should move. They will begin to see and find and create stories about why they should move. Let's say the very next day someone says, you can't move. You can't move and you shouldn't move. The very next day they will start thinking of, finding, creating stories about why they shouldn't move. So you have to be really careful because that's called confirmation bias. And mm. this is the scientific concept that when you have a belief, you only look for the stories and examples that already support your belief. And that's anti-learning. And I think that if we really want to be empathetic, kind, growing creatures on this planet, we have to be learning. And that means hearing research that maybe doesn't confirm your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it couldn't be more true from like the kind of climate that we're in at the moment. <sighs> It yes. just feels like we're all in our bubbles, of course. But, you know, I was thinking the other day about, I, I love, I've spoken a lot about what, since hearing it from other people that I admire, like Seth Godin and people like that, mm-hmm. this idea of finding a tribe. Like, yeah. great, amazing. I want to find my tribe. But I also <laughs> don't want to find, I also don't want to hang yeah. out with my tribe the whole time. Yeah. Because they're too like-minded. We're the same. That's why we love each other. That's why we're, oh. we're in a tribe. Oh, that's a hard it one. It is hard. But sometimes it's like, where are the people that aren't my tribe that I can that can teach me how to be different. Okay, okay. That's an interesting point because I do talk about finding your tribe. I mentioned I, finding yeah. your people. You know, it's funny. Um, I had this interesting moment the other day. I haven't shared this because kind of, it was kind of a weird moment. So I was, giving a spe- I was doing a speaking event, do a ton of corporate speaking. 
And obviously, the whole point of the book is that, yes, you can be born charismatic, but you don't have to be, okay? Mm. In other words, you can learn it. That That's a big argument in the book. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written a book because if you can't learn it, then what's the point? <laughs> yeah. So this is a huge argument. I did this whole presentation and, like, people are excited. And this one guy raises his hand. And I just had a, I had a feeling about this guy. I just had a feeling he was giving me real negative nonverbals. And I, and I was, like, waiting to call on him. I was, like, hoping we run out of time. But I called on him. And he said, do you really believe that people can learn it? And, you know, you, you seem very charismatic now. There's just no way that you were awkward. And I was like, well, of course I believe that people can learn it. And I am living proof of that. I wouldn't be standing here if you couldn't learn it. And he goes, I respectfully disagree. In front of, like, a whole room full of, like, bigwigs. And I had this moment. Where I like look at him, and this guy was not my tribe, okay? And I could have said, Oh, you know, I'm so sorry, you can disagree to disagree, like kind of like tried to apologize for it. But I was like, you know what? This guy is not my tribe, and like that's actually a good thing. And so what I said, and so the moderator was like, Oh, okay, 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 you know, we're okay, well, we're gonna wrap up, you know, and he's worried for me. I said, Wait, I just I would love to address this. And I said, if you, sir, believe that you cannot learn people skills, you never will. If you don't believe that you can change, there is nothing that I could say in a book or a TED talk or a television show or a podcast that's going to convince you. This book is not for you. I didn't write it for you. You have what's called a fixed mindset. A fixed mindset by Carol Dweck means that you do not believe innate abilities can be changed. And if you believe that, they certainly cannot be. However, yeah, 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 yeah. And like people, it was like so quiet. And I said it with, and I felt respect for him. I actually felt sad for him. Instead of getting angry that he wasn't my tribe and he was sitting in the audience and he wasn't going to buy the book, I didn't want, I realized I don't want him to buy the book. And actually everyone else in the room is going to learn from this. Mm -hmm. And I looked around the room and I said, if you believe that, please do not buy the book. If you feel you can change something and you want to change, then you are my people and I want to meet you. So in a way, I feel like... That's apparently a ratio that you should always have in mind when you're public speaking. Someone what told me when I did a talk once and I was heckled in the audience. What? Some, someone didn't agree with something I said. They heckled um, you? Yeah, like stood up and was really rude. Um, but it was in an environment where I wasn't used to the... like. Uh. It wasn't like kind of 20-something... 30-something women live like in a media industry like right. to be fair I was out of my comfort zone and that's something that you have to address don't you like I've you know the the crowd is making me feel uncomfortable that's my issue I need to warm to them they need to warm to me right. you, you have to get out of your comfort zone but um this one of the one of the ladies on the panel was um in her 80s oh. this really amazing um like very iconic artist and she emailed me afterwards because she could tell i was probably like a bit upset which i was like who heckles you <laughs> and she, exactly and she emailed me she was like i've been doing talks for like years decades she's like one thing you've always got to remember is there'll be a large proportion of people who will listen to every word and they will remember what you said but you'll never know because i'll never tell you but there'll always be a proportion of people who will not agree with you from the start and they, right. will, and they never will. Right. And then there's like a smaller last proportion of people who kind of were a bit like... I mean, not, in between. Yeah, they were in between. They're a bit like, mm, okay, like I don't agree nor disagree. So I thought that was really interesting and like a real learning. I, that's the answer I think to your other question, which is like, 
how do you, if you stick with only your tribe, you only hear one thing. I think the key is putting yourself in situations where you're still comfortable with non-tribe people, mm-hmm. right? So for you, you said, you know, it's my issue that I was uncomfortable out of my comfort zone, right? Like this wasn't my audience. That was weren't your people. But if you could find a way to try to be comfortable amongst them, it's a really interesting learning opportunity to at least not hear your echo chamber. And, and not just have people nodding at you. Right. Because that's that's bad too. I, 100%. Also, it doesn't push your work. And I think, and this is a choice you have to make, is do you want to be the kind of person where everyone likes you? Or do you want to be the kind of person who's pushing people out of their comfort zones? I find that a lot of those people who are not tribe members who have said things to me either before or after talks, and I've had all kinds of things said to me on YouTube comments. Oh my God, our YouTube channel, because we have so many followers on YouTube and so we get some crazies. And like we'll have 90 amazing comments and like one, I wouldn't even say troll because trolls you disregard, but like really non-tribe mean pushing comment. And sometimes I've had some really big learnings from those, so much so that it will create me to write a whole chapter about, like I write, I have a whole chapter on difficult people. Mm. All, yeah. every single one of those difficult people were non-tribe members, but they gave me a whole chapter's worth of material, right? They gave me a whole new skill set. I have a framework for dealing with difficult people because I've met those people. And so I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Not every day. Not every, today I'm grateful, <laughs> but not every day. Oh, I to- I totally agree. It's um, it's it's always a learning. But then it's it, I kind of don't understand why anyone would have anything negative to say about a book that is just saying here's how you can be better at being with people, more Com- warm, more, more open. confident. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the the negative comments are always what I missed. So it's not necessarily I said something wrong. It's always like, oh, but you didn't talk about this really important issue and I go maybe the next book (laughs) right like so a lot of times it's like that or an example is so I talk about dopamine in the book so I love chemicals and talk a lot about chemicals dopamine is um the pleasure chemical so if someone says I have a gift for you you spark dopamine so I talk about dopamine in the book and one woman came up after me this happened last week because the book just came out and she goes you know I, I really I have I have to take something up with you that I'm very upset about in your book I said oh my god what is it and she goes, dopamine causes Alzheimer's. And I was like, excuse me? She said, oh, too much dopamine has all these neurological problems. And I said, that's fine, right? Like, that's that's great. I'm talking about stimulating dopamine verbally, which is not going to cause Alzheimer's. I'm not going to go into all the ramifications of this one chemical. So she was saying I should have added cautions. And that's another thing that I get a lot is I also wrote a post on how to snap yourself out of a funk. Um, Oh, that's so needed. uh, Yes. (laughs) Because like sometimes you just got to get yourself. I I honor if you feel depressed and you you need to like take a time out, cool. But there are some times where you can't. You know, you got to be like, I got to get myself out of this funk. I have a big meeting or whatever it is, a birthday party, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I have a couple strategies on how to do it. And I had people really push back and say, you, you can't say this. You have to recommend therapy. And I was like, why can't we have both? Like, why can't we have the short and long-term strategies? So, yeah, because everything, having the options is very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Like, have, have loads of options. I would rather give you all the tools in the toolbox than just give you a hammer. Lastly, yes. Um, so, what are you excited about in the, like the coming months, the rest of the year? I, so, this is the first time. It's so weird. You know, I don't know. Everyone listening should have a career bucket list. Um, 
even if you don't know what you want to do, have a career bucket list. Because everyone, we talk about bucket lists all the time. Uh, you know, things to do before you die, like climb Mount Kilimanjaro and go skydiving. But we very rarely have career bucket lists. And if you're an ambitious female or male listening, like I want you to have high goals. As of today, today, I got every single thing except one off of my career bucket list. All Amazing. Ha- like, and that happened all in the last five weeks. It was like, publish a book, get a TED Talk, speak at Facebook, which I spoke at today. So like for the first time ever, I get to fill in my career bucket list again. That's so cool. Like dream bigger. Like I don't even know. Like what's, what, publishing a book, that's it. Like that, like I just feel like, oh my gosh, like it's the coolest thing ever. Like what's next? I don't know. Yeah. So maybe I'm going to spend the summer. You kind of need to like refresh it maybe. Yeah, like what do I want? Maybe it will take a totally different direction. Maybe. And like it's like out of this crazy life and this crazy career that I have, which is a very weird career, like what's next? Like maybe it's not the big accolade stuff. Maybe it's something small or totally different. I don't know. And so I think that I... I really love that. Think about it. There might be times where your goal like turns on its head. Yes. And it's like... Actually, I need the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to maybe challenge myself to think about different kinds of career goals um, in that kind of vein. So maybe it's not like, what's bigger than a TEDx talk? A TED talk. You know, like, like that's the obvious sort of. I don't. I don't actually think I need that. You know, like my goal is not to publish a second book immediately and also have it be a bestseller. Like those are not the goals. And they might be different. You know, it's like maybe it's starting a family. You know, maybe it's um, learning how to garden. <laughs> like, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, maybe it's some. Maybe it's like, I don't know. Like, trying something different. So those are those are also career goals in, in a certain sense. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it was yeah. so good to meet you. Oh, thanks for having I re- me. I actually am really gutted that um, it's over. <laughs> and like, but thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.